Welcome to Worth Watching Host Choice, where we hosts finally get to choose what we're watching. And today we're talking about the 1988 film Scrooge. I'm your host, and all I can say is, you don't get to ghost me, I ghost you. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who never found a problem he couldn't solve with a bottle of booze and a shotgun. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So, full disclosure to our audience, <laughs> for the first time in however long we've been doing this, uh, we kind of lost an episode, so we're we're doing it again. We'll see how, how this goes. Yeah, I blame Microsoft. <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to get my microphone working on Windows 11, and then we recorded on the cell phone, and it just didn't turn out well. No. Well, but, you know, we get a chance to make it all the better. Yeah. So, um, you uh, chose this one, and mm -hmm. what's your background with this film? I saw it when it was in the theater in 1988. For whatever reason, I've always I've always loved it. Uh, has a lot of dark humor in it. Uh, I enjoy the performances. It's one of those movies that, for me, everything comes together: the music, <laughs> the dialogue, the casting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Yeah, and it's uh, I think one of the reasons we decided to watch this one is it's just one of those films that keeps coming up in our discussions, and I'd never seen it. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. So it just uh, was time. Also, I'll say ahead of time, and we'll touch on when we get there, there's an amazing number of crossovers with our Rage Against the Machine season and this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we see a lot of familiar faces. In the <laughs> yep. <laughs> and even scenes and, and that sort of thing. So now I will say that the I've now watched this three times because I watched it <laughs> two times in preparation for our first take at this and then i watched it again today as, as a refresher and i particularly didn't like the first half but and it it could be stockholm syndrome <laughs> but <laughs> as i've watched it more often i've i've gotten a little more uh, uh warm towards it so we'll see yeah. we'll see how that goes <laughs> all right okay with that let's jump into the movie All right. Well, it starts off with, uh, we hear this Danny Elfman theme. He's written some good uh, movie themes, and I think this is a, an especially good one. In fact, I was irritated back when I was in college. I bought the soundtrack album, hoping that that theme would be on it, and mm. it wasn't. It was mm. all the pop songs that are in the movie. Mm. Um, and then it, later on, it was released on an album of, Danny Elfman's movie uh, themes, <laughs> appropriately enough. Yeah, probably some licensing issue. Yeah, you know how yeah. things work. But uh, but it's a good one, I think. It's it's this this sort of creepy, haunting little children's choir going la la la, hmm. and uh, you know, kind of Amityville horror like if you ever saw that. But uh, anyway, it's uh, it's good. And then we see the Paramount logo, uh, which uh, we've seen. You know, it's one of those one of those logos that sometimes, depending on who's making a movie, they'll have a little fun with it. And this time, they just zoom in and over the mountain, <laughs> and you see a sea of clouds with a starry sky above it. Uh, and there's a star in the middle of it, 
presumably the star of Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it dives down through the clouds and uh, we go to the North Pole and Santa's mm-hmm. village and workshop and all that. And inside Santa's workshop, it's pretty much what you'd expect. Very busy, very festive. A few of the elves have, uh, you know, little punk rock outfits on. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's mainly your normal Santa's workshop. But that star that we saw, the star of Bethlehem, was actually an incoming missile. (laughs) And uh, it lands uh, in the snow outside the workshop, and everybody starts panicking. Uh, Then a snowmobile pulls up outside, and there's a man in a parka carrying a light machine gun who enters the front door, and everybody's in suspense. And then he pulls off his hood, and Santa says, It's Lee Majors! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the $6 million man. <laughs> and I think this is one of those things where it works for us, right? But our younger listeners will have no idea, right, like who Lee Majors is. But when yeah. I was a kid, and uh, I don't know this probably was true for you too, but the $6 million man was huge to me. I mean, you know, I watched it all the time. I, you know, I, I, I kind of worshipped it. I mean, you know, you had these bizarre slow motion things of him running along because he's supposed to be this sort of – Android guy who's you know super strong and super fast and all mm-hmm. this. <laughs> yeah, and I loved it. Yeah, but yeah. now like who the hell knows who Lee Majors is? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't hear much about him nowadays. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he had quite a run though. He had the uh, Six Million Dollar Man. He had the Fall Guy. Uh, he had been in a whole bunch of stuff back in the day. Um, Wasn't the Fall Guy um, Burt Reynolds or my? Was he I'm in there too? I'm pretty sure that was Lee Majors. You might be thinking of Smokey and the Bandit, maybe. Okay, sure. now we got to look this up here. Wait a second. <laughs> uh, the Fall Guy. American television series. Lee Majors. Okay, well, you're right. I'm going to have to go back. I must be. Was, but was that the stunt one? Because was, there was a Burt Reynolds one. It was a stunt yeah. one. Yeah, he's uh you know, I think I think there's a line in in the theme song that mentions Burt Reynolds. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. No, you know, okay, that made I'm a gonna, lover out of Burt. I think that <laughs> might be a might be a well, line. No, that's not, not what I'm thinking of. Okay, more more searching and we'll we'll probably take some of this out, but uh <laughs> Burt Reynolds uh stunt man TV show cuz I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure. Hmm. Okay, well, he was a stunt guy in the movie Hooper, which was, mm. um, which I had fun with. Wait, what? Are, the Fall Guy season one. There's something about Burt Reynolds here. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm reading an article here about it. Uh, it sounds like so. It's so. I guess the Fall Guy was sort of inspired by Burt Reynolds. Ah. I could swear he had a TV show where he was. A stunt guy, uh, but I'm, I guess hmm. you're you're right, and I'm misremembering. So I, I suspect the deal is that the Fall Guy was inspired by Hooper, in which Burt Reynolds played a stuntman. Oh, okay, uh, and and that it was uh, that it was Lee Majors. So now I'm gonna yeah. have to, and maybe you know, again, maybe we'll find some excuse to watch at least one or two of the episodes yeah, of the Fall Guy. That could be fun. <laughs> And uh, looking at the lyrics here, uh, Burt Reynolds is mentioned at least twice in the opening theme to the show. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's well, a connection Well, I gladly there. cleared that up. Again, this is, this is the kind of content you don't get on other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, in the movie, Lee Majors has shown up to rescue Santa's workshop. And uh, I won't go into detail about what all happens, because it turns out this is just a promotional television yeah, ad. But, uh, well, I'll go into a little bit of detail, because this is actually one of my favorite parts of the movie. I think this sequence is, this whole sequence <laughs> is a lot of fun. And I love the fact that, you know, Lee Majors comes in and, you know, unveils his face, and they're all like, oh, it's Lee Majors, you know. So, um, uh, <laughs> and... Lee Majors is like, you know, well, I can be, you know, it, it's okay if something happens to me, but but nothing can happen to you. You know, all the children are depending on you, uh, Santa. So, you know, and then Santa, and he's like, do you have a back door? We can go out the back. And Santa's like, we do, of course, but this Santa goes out the front. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, they're all armed, and Santa's armed. And <laughs> oh yeah, Mrs. Claus is handing out uh, rifles and all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry, I just had to go into detail. I think it's a oh, fun yeah. scene. Yeah, it is. And it, this is the first of three ads that we see. The second one is Bob Goulet, uh, <laughs> and he's a. Uh, Doing a Christmas special, a very special Christmas special. Yeah, but he's he's like going along in a boat. It's really funny. It's really good. I don't know how to describe <laughs> it. Maybe we'll put a quote in here, but uh, yeah. I did enjoy that one. 8.30, and America's best love singer invites you to share a home-style holiday. When it's Bob Goulet's old-fashioned Cajun Christmas. And then the third one is, uh, it actually has the theme music from Leave It to Beaver, the old 50s TV show. And this is a promo for a show called Father Loves Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> and it ends with the wife saying to her son, I'm pretty sure your dad is out looking for beaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so anybody with, uh, with refined sensibilities would have known at this point to leave the theater, uh, <laughs> and let the rest of us get down to it. These three promos after the third ad, we, we see a computer generated logo for IBC. This is actually for 1988. The CGI I think is pretty good. Uh, and this is promo for their holiday specials and, uh, their slogan is, you'll love it, Y-U-L-E, of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's how it starts off, and we find out that these promos are being watched on a big wall of television screens. Uh, you know, this was 88, so there's still actual glass <laughs> CRT screens. And it's the big office of the president of the network, Frank Cross, who is Bill Murray. They're watching these promos. After these promos end, he says nothing for a moment. And then he wants to see the Scrooge promo. So they fire that up, and it turns out the Scrooge is a big live production for Christmas Eve. It's the Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol, with an all-star cast, and it's done live. It's going to have John Hausman, Buddy Hackett, Jamie Farr, Mary Lou Retton, the Solid Gold Dancers, uh, a bunch of names that uh, are... are very familiar to your hosts, but uh, to, <laughs> yeah, again, uh, children today probably not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're some of them are fairly obscure nowadays. But it turns out that this big event, it's going to be live. There's going to have satellite feeds from all over the world. Uh, you know, South Africa and the Great Barrier Reef, this there and the other <laughs> place. And and the Vatican is all discovered, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when the ad's over, 
Frank Cross thinks the ad sucks. He doesn't like it at all. He, he says they're putting millions into this production, and you've got America's favorite old fart reading a book in front of a fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> One executive, uh, Elliot Loudermilk is the executive's name, and he's played by Bobcat Goldthwaite, and he's very much in his Bobcat Goldthwaite <laughs> 1980s persona. Yeah, um, and when, especially when I first watched this, because he looks rather different, so I was like, hmm. boy, he sounds like this comedian I'm familiar with. <laughs> it wasn't until I like, looked at the credits afterwards, like, oh, wow, really, it is Bobcat Goldthwait. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, for anybody who's been following us, uh, that is mm-hmm. the director of God Bless America. <laughs> One of my favorite films. <laughs> Yeah, and, I, and again, only uh, the first of many connections uh, to our stuff. Yeah. What were yeah. you going to say? Sorry. Oh no, that uh, that about sums it up. I, no, I actually, I I surprisingly liked the movie considerably more than I expected to. I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites, but uh, you know, it had its merits. I thought, which was I didn't expect it to have any merits. Really. <laughs> so that was yeah, a pleasant right. surprise for me. And I had a different reaction. Yeah. Our, our listeners can go back and listen to that episode if they <laughs> haven't heard it. Yeah. So Bobcat Goldthwaite as Elliot Loudermilk, he's uh, he's got these little uh, Trotsky glasses, you know, they're wire-rimmed, some little round glasses, and he's very, very corporate-looking. Uh, and he says people already want to see the show, you know, so it, it's, you know. The yeah, they've is- actually, they've already been playing these ads for a few weeks and people have responded really well. So it's a little weird that they're reviewing it now, but okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, but to Frank Cross, that's not good enough. He says, they have got to be so scared to miss it. So that could be one of the one of the origins of the FOMO phrase that we hear the kids say nowadays, fear of missing out. You yeah, be- and we also see, I mean, Cross is one of these CEOs where, okay, if the, if his team did something that's working well and everyone likes it, he's still going to go in and say, you're all wrong and, you know, it's got to be better. And he, he's going to push no matter what, right? No, probably, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't get a... Real deep glimpse into his managerial style, but right. uh, but it's although clear next that we get a, a glimpse into his brain, which is kind of disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he has gone ahead and made his own promo, uh, and he's going to show the executives how he <laughs> thinks it should be done. And this promo, he brings it up on the big wall of television screens, and it's horrifying. It's got. Acid rain, it's got heroin addicts shooting <laughs> up, it's got freeway killers, uh, and to top it all off, the ad ends with uh, the atomic bomb. Yeah, and, and whenever there's dialogue in it, he's repeating the dialogue as it's out. He, like, he's really <laughs> into this, right? Yeah, he, I mean, very, he knows it intimately, yeah. Very gleefully uh, yeah. savoring all the uh, all the efforts to terrify people. That, you know, this, com- this commercial is designed to scare people into... Not missing the show. <laughs> as soon as it's over, he just dismisses everyone. They go filing out of the office, and some of them are visibly nauseous from the uh, from having watched it. <laughs> it was that bad for them. Uh, and one person, Elliot Loudermilk, Bobcat Goldthwaite, he stays behind courageously uh, to argue against this new promo. He says, that looked like the Manson family Christmas special. <laughs> Yeah, and and Frank is um, 
This is where we start to see how nasty he is. He's right, like, he kind of thanks him for the feedback, although he says he should have got it earlier. And Bobcat's like, but I just saw this, <laughs> saw it. And he says, well, within five minutes, I'll let you know if I can make changes. And of course, this is going to turn out to be um, a little disturbing what he means by this. <laughs> yeah. Because as soon as Elliot has left the office, Frank has his secretary, Grace, call security. Uh, and. Elliot Loudermilk Code 9 is what she says, just those words. And that means he's fired. <laughs> and we see him sitting out on the steps of the entrance to the building, and security brings out a box that ca contains his stuff. Right. His I think desk. he's saying, like, well, my wife will understand, or we're going to have to move to an apartment. And <laughs> <laughs> I have to move to a and studio the, apartment. And <laughs> yeah, and this starts an arc, you know, <laughs> we're going to yeah, see. Yeah, you know. the Elliot Loudermilk will... will We'll see more of him as the show goes on. <laughs> Frank Cross, meanwhile, is up uh, in his office, and he's going over his Christmas list with Grace. Uh, she sends out his Christmas gifts every year, and it's everybody that he's giving any kind of gift to either gets a towel or a VHS yeah. video cassette player. And, you know, I didn't, until this third time <laughs> that I watched it, I did not recognize that he's doing the Santa Claus thing here, right? People are naughty or nice. And if he likes them <laughs> or if he thinks they're important, they get a good gift, you know, the VCR or whatever. Mm -hmm. And otherwise they get a towel. Right? But I, yeah. I just didn't connect that he was being Santa Claus with the naughty or nice here. It's kind of oh, funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's not so much naughtiness as it is curatings. Yeah. Right? But – uh yeah, and his own brother, he was going to give a towel, but he tells Grace, be wrong once, and the person she is wrong about, we'll see later, uh, <laughs> she she gives his brother the VHS video cassette recorder. <laughs> so he's watching the plaza out, out front of the building as he's, uh, as he's talking to her. Um, he's watching with a telescope he actually has mounted in his <laughs> office just to watch the plaza, so this must be a... Fairly common occurrence. Mm. And as Elliot Loudermilk is given the boot, he looks at his watch and he says, four minutes, 40 seconds, a new record. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so the phone rings in his office and it's Preston Rhinelander, who is the big boss. It's, a, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not Rhinelander on the phone. It's a call warning him that Rhinelander's on the way. And um, this is one of the connections to our previous films because this is Robert Mitchum, mm -hmm. um, who we, well, last week <laughs> saw in uh, Night of the Hunter. And one of the things I love is that, you know, he's, I don't know, uh, I don't recall the year, he's probably 20 years older or something than he was in yeah, Night of the Hunter. probably 30 because Hunter was the mid-50s, if I remember yeah. right, and this was, yeah, was the late 80s. So, oh, you're yeah. probably right. I was thinking of the 60s. But you're right. So this is 30 years later, and a lot of famous actors being in a film like this when they're older, they would just be phoning it in, right? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't phone it in. He doesn't wink at the camera. I mean, he really plays this character and I, I thought that was pretty impressive oh yeah yeah he's he's very entertaining in this role i mean it's not a huge role we see him mostly well we see him here we'll see him in the restaurant uh in a little little later and then at the very end when he's at home watching the watching the <laughs> big premiere but yeah he's a he's a fun little character and uh He's Frank's boss, and he has seen a study that some you know, school or something published on pets. They're beginning to watch TV. So he wants to add some pet appeal to the programming. 
And that's uh, going to be Frank who's in charge of having to do yeah, that. Yeah, he wants them to put like mice and other things in there so that the pets will be interested, right? And it's kind of interesting <laughs> because it it also establishes that, okay, Frank is an asshole, but he does have to deal with an insane boss, right? <laughs> and he has to keep him happy. He's like, okay, sure, we'll put some mice in or something, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Although his boss does does say they don't want to go overboard with it. And Frank's <laughs> like, oh, no, of course not. <laughs> Frank walks Preston back to the elevator bank. And as soon as Preston has taken his elevator back up, another elevator stops on this floor. And this contains uh, this very energetic <laughs> young guy who uh, uh, asks the elevator operator to hold the elevator for a moment. Turns out this is Bryce Cummings. He went to school with Preston's son, and uh, he has met uh, Frank Cross briefly in the past at a restaurant. So he just greets Frank and uh, just long enough to get on Frank's nerves anew, and then gets back in the elevator and goes up to see Preston. So this guy is John Glover. I don't know if you're familiar with him. But he's a very interesting actor. I've seen him lots of stuff. And he's always a very quirky actor. And uh, so he definitely brings it here. He was in a TV show I liked a lot called The Unsinkable Molly Brown, I think. Anyway, so he's a really interesting actor and uh, really good at being obnoxious, <laughs> which he is in this. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Very briefly, very soon in the future, uh, Bill Murray will describe him as an L.A. slime ball uh, when he's talking mm. to his secretary. And uh, he conveys that very well in the, in the movie. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I will also say when we get there, he is a slime ball, but he's also competent, right? I mean, he ends up running the show, and it's clear you yeah. know, he's really on top of things when we get there. But that yeah. is true. Got to give the devil his due. He does seem to. <laughs> he does seem to have some actual production chops. But if you if you've seen Office Space, you picture Bill Lumberg, uh, you <laughs> know, maybe uh, ten years younger, and he's very similar <laughs> to that in a lot of ways. Maybe a little more energy, maybe a little slicker, but uh, yeah, similar character. So Cross to asks his secretary, Grace, to research Bryce Cummings, the L.A. slime ball. Says she will, or maybe, she, I don't remember if she says she will or not. But anyway, she, she will at some point, but she can't work late tonight because she's got a doctor's appointment with her son. Uh, and she's had a plan for months. It's hard to get a an appointment with this doctor apparently and cross doesn't want to hear about it if he can't work if she can't work late he can't work late but she's saved when it turns out that bill murray's brother is waiting in his exercise <laughs> room um and and his brother is actually played by his brother i believe one of his brothers mm, is it because so i know uh uh Doyle Murphy, Brian Doyle Murphy shows up later as his yeah, father. He shows up is this as another his dad, brother? Yep. Then this is another brother. Yep. Okay, I didn't recognize that. Okay. Yeah. So there you go out. Uh, they leave the office. They walk together down the street in New York City, and there's a sidewalk jazz band just busking there, you know, playing for coins. And uh, I imagine everybody in the band is probably an accomplished musician. Mm -hmm. I know Paul Schaefer is in the band, and. <laughs> He's a good musician. I didn't catch that. But yeah, I'll mention it later. I mean, there are a number of actors who show up for like 30 seconds, and I don't know who they are, but I'm like, this has got to be a cameo because it just makes no sense to give this much attention to this actor if they're not somebody, right? Yeah. 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 Although, although there is a lot in this movie that I think is just done just for, for the fun of it, you know, just <laughs> little throwaway stuff. But uh, 
But yeah, no doubt many of these cameos are people who uh, have some kind of significance beyond what we we audience people know. So he bids his brother farewell. He distracts a woman who's calling for a cab, and while she's while her back is turned, he hops in the cab and takes it. <laughs> and this is an older woman too, who's like got all these packages in her arms and everything. Yeah, right? she's she, she really needs the cab. <laughs> sweet old lady. Yeah, and he's just, this is just to reinforce the idea that he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> And the cab, he takes it to go to a humanitarian of the year banquet, and he's receiving the award. He, he's <laughs> the humanitarian of the year. And uh, he's almost certainly bought the award somehow. Uh, yeah, his speech is kind of ludicrous, of course, because it's <laughs> right, right, his whole his whole <laughs> life is about helping people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he talks about how he'd have to tell himself, stop, stop giving. <laughs> <laughs> So the cab returns him to the IBC offices. He He's going to keep working late, with or without Grace. And he leaves the statuette in the back seat. And the way it, this is shot, it looks almost like it might be a MacGuffin, like he's going to realize he forgot the right. statuette and be distraught. But no, well, you should never... mention that, you know, at the end of his speech, of course, he's like, I will always value this. And he holds up the statuette. And of course, the first <laughs> things he does is just leave it in the cab. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think he says, well, I'll always cherish this and and all of you <laughs> and he probably feels about as much about everybody in that room as he did about the statuette <laughs> right uh so it seems like this could be a MacGuffin, but no this is we, we never see this statuette again although we do later on we'll see that he has in his office several emmys that he really does cherish yeah so again that's sort of character development you know he doesn't mm-hmm. care about the humanitarian statuette but the the emmys that's that's what he does. That's something he's proud of. <laughs> yeah, understandable. <laughs> he walks into the building. He's got this nice, sharp black overcoat. The lobby security stands up to greet him, and he gives him this really, I don't know, to me, it's amusing. He gives him a very exaggerated sneer before <laughs> he gets in the elevator to head up to his office. Yeah, he's not one of those guys who knows, you know, the name of everybody and their kids and all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, neither am I, so what am I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Grace and Calvin, we see uh, the secretary, Grace, and her son, Calvin. He's uh, just a young guy, probably, I don't know, 9 or 10, something like that. But he, uh, they're emerging from an elevated rail station, walking down the steps. Uh, it's at night. They've mm-hmm. been to the doctor's office, and Grace is talking about this ineffective doctor they just visited. Uh, she says something to the effect of, $200 to tell me you don't talk. I know you don't <laughs> talk. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, for, for those of us that didn't catch it, it's, uh, this Calvin is the tiny Tim of, of this mm. retelling of the Christmas Carol. Actually, you know, it's funny cause I, I didn't think of that. It's, it, obviously it's very obvious, but I didn't think of that, but I have to admit, I, I'm, I haven't watched or paid attention to the Christmas Carol in a long time. So I don't think. <laughs> so now we see Frank in his office. He's making a Stoliknaya and Tab. And just for those viewers who haven't had a chance to try Tab, uh, I have had it. And as long as it was available, I would buy it whenever I could find it. It got to the point where I could only find it in northern Michigan. So Yeah, don't you don't really hear about year. it anymore. Yeah, so, I mean, it was just another one of the sodas when we were kids. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a Diet Coke before Diet Coke even <laughs> existed. And it was very similar to Coke, especially compared to Diet Coke, which I've never <laughs> cared for. 
It was pretty tasty, uh, and it had saccharin instead of aspartame, which was nice because uh, saccharin is less uh, deadly for you, I think. Although I can't back <laughs> that up with any research, I'm just saying. <laughs> this podcast has no opinion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's drinking Stolichnaya and Tab, so vodka and Coke, basically. Well, we do know that Stolichnaya is good for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, full of, uh, full of what a body needs to grow. So he's making himself a drink. He hears a noise outside the door to his office. He's got a great big thick metal door in his office. Here's a noise outside, and he checks, but there's nothing out there. Uh, but then as soon as he gets back in and closes the doors, fist marks start appearing in the doors. Things start shaking. There's a huge racket. And uh, the door is getting visibly dented by these fist marks, which makes me think that this may have been influenced by aliens which came out two years prior and i believe there's a scene like that in in aliens where the door yeah, is I, I think you're right i think they're doing that yeah so he pulls a revolver from his desk drawer which uh, in new york city you'd pretty much have to be a television executive or someone of similar <laughs> rank to have a have a gun without getting in trouble for it either that or a criminal you probably wouldn't get in trouble for that either anyway <laughs> he pulls his revolver out and the doors burst inward to reveal a dusty walking corpse in a golf outfit. And he's wheeling, wheeling a golf bag behind him. And the office has a nice little bar, as every executive office should have, uh, mm -hmm. right near the entrance door. And this corpse stops by the bar to make himself a drink. And Frank shoots at him multiple times because he's, you know, he looks like your standard run-of-the-mill zombie if, uh, <laughs> you know. It, it kind of weird. While he's shooting, he's saying like "blam, blam, blam, bang, oh, blam." <laughs> yep, he's he's kind of narrating his actions. <laughs> but he's he was weaned on television, so yeah, it's understandable. I think. He shoots multiple times. He hits the corpse, uh, but it isn't harmed at all. And uh, the corpse makes a makes a remark like, uh, "I don't mind you shooting at me, Frank, but take it easy on the Bacardi." <laughs> And then a golf ball plops out of a <laughs> hole in the back of the corpse's head. And the golf ball is followed by a little mouse that crawls out. So I think that's just to emphasize the idea that, yes, this is really a dead guy. Yeah, it is weird. And then the mouse goes back in, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Frank, Frank kind of grimaces and winces. Uh, he finds it distasteful somehow. And finally, Frank recognizes this corpse. It's his old boss and, and good friend, Lou Hayward. He's been dead for seven years. And Lou is the Marley figure in this movie. <laughs> He's come to warn Frank not to wind up doomed as he is. And Frank says that he's a hallucination, Russian vodka, poisoned by Chernobyl, <laughs> which was also a very topical thing. I think. Yeah. I think that was only two years before Scrooge, if I remember right. Maybe three, I can't remember. But anyway, it's, it's the equivalent of, of Ebenezer Scrooge saying that, uh, I think he said that Marley was, uh, you know, just a bit of gravy or something. There's more, <laughs> more of gravy than the grave about you, I think he said. But uh, so this is, this is Frank's equivalent of that. And uh, Lou Hayward, uh, as they're talking about what a good businessman he was, Lou says, mankind should have been my business. Mm -hmm. uh, which I believe is is lifted directly from the Christmas Carol. I think mm. that's something Marley actually said. And of course, it transpires that Frank will be visited <laughs> by three ghosts. <laughs> 
The first he can expect tomorrow at noon, etc., etc. So Frank keeps making flippant remarks, though. He, he <laughs> figures at this point he's, he's just going to roll with whatever the hell is in the drink that he just had. Lou gets impatient with him. He's not taking it seriously. So Lou magically pushes him through the office window in a, uh, it's kind of an understated special effect, but I think it's reasonably well done. You see the office window sort of ripple as he pushes him through. Right. I think it is. So yeah, he doesn't break the window. He literally just puts him on the other side of the window. So that's pretty <laughs> effective. And then Frank is like, wait, people will think I committed suicide, which I thought was interesting because somehow it's important to him that you know, people not think that about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a little uh, little window into his soul there. And Lou dangles him out the window, just his dry old corpse arm grabbing Frank and hanging him over the busy city street, which is many, many floors below. And finally, as Frank is dangling there, this old corpse arm, <laughs> the bones break. And Frank falls to the ground, and we see him fall all the way down. But then when he's just about to hit the bottom, we see him hit a floor, but it's not the pavement outside. It's the floor of his office. Yeah. Uh, and Lou is gone, and everything that was previously shot up or knocked down, you know, the doors were all dented and dusty and pounded in. Uh, everything's intact. The office is like no, nothing ever happened. And as he's lying there on the floor, the buttons on his speakerphone start pressing themselves. There's some invisible hand dialing the number. On the readout of the digital phone, or the, the digital readout of the what was probably at the time still a landline type mm -hmm. of phone, on the readout, it, the name says Claire Phillips, which is, to us viewers, a name that doesn't mean anything yet. He dashes to the phone and picks it up, and he leaves a message. He, he he says, I know it's been, and he checks his watch, and he says, 15 years <laughs> since we <laughs> talked. But he has to talk to her. It's urgent. And he, he gives a real number here. You know, we, we usually hear 555 numbers uh, in movies, but this is a real number. It doesn't have an area code, but uh, but but it's some but you kind know of what? real number. I don't know that they did in this case, but I assume they did. Usually when movies did a real number like this, they would buy that phone number so yeah, that they wouldn't get sued by number. somebody. Yeah, and they'd put some – yeah, but they just didn't want to get sued by somebody getting, you know, called by thousands of people or whatever. Oh, sure, so, yeah. You know. But they, they do use the 555 trick elsewhere in this movie. So hmm. the, this, this particular number is just sort of a, an exception. But I, I think I think there might be like a Klondike Five number on that Operation Reach Out card that we see later on, mm. you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that. But but anyway, just a small detail that I found interesting. He finishes leaving a message for Claire. He takes a drink from his vodka and tab, and then he slowly pulls a golf ball out of his mouth. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't all a hallucination after all. <laughs> So meanwhile, at Grace's apartment, we see uh, everybody's in the Christmas spirit, more or less. Although they're like, oh, did you get your bonus, right? And, and <laughs> She's drying her hair with it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. he gave her a towel. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so out in the living room, the kids decorate Calvin as a Christmas tree. Apparently, this is something they do every year, and he doesn't Yeah, and talk. this really upsets Grace, right? Like, you know, she runs in and sees this, and it, she's really pissed it, off at them for it. It, it yeah. upsets her, but you can also see her trying to hide a smile. 
She is telling him to stop, but she's also, to me, it seems she's trying to hide a smile. So back in Frank's office, it's daytime now, the next day, one of his executive staff shows him a front-page story of the New York Daily News, IBC Kills Old Woman. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out the Scrooge promo, Frank's new horrifying Scrooge promo, uh, scared her to death. And he puts his face in his hands for a minute. He looks like he might be feeling terrible remorse. But it turns out he's just delighted. He says, you can't Mm -hmm. buy publicity like this. Mm -hmm. And then he wants the commercial run constantly with like a warning saying, if you have a heart problem, you shouldn't watch this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's going to double down on it now that he sees how effective it is. (laughs) So now we see Frank on the set of Scrooge. This is the big Christmas Eve uh, extravaganza that the network has a lot of uh, riding on, apparently. He argues with the censor about one of the solid gold dancers and her costume. And this dancer, I I think maybe it's this dancer in particular. She just has big nipples because you can (laughs) see him over the top of the costume. Yeah, and they don't. This isn't one of those 80s movies where you see someone topless, but this comes pretty close. Yeah, yeah. You can barely see that nipple. That's one one of the stagehands. <laughs> because there's two stagehands nearby, and they're checking out the dancer. They're really looking for the nipple. One of them's carrying a lamppost for the set because it's a street in Victorian London. And when he turns, you know, Frank tells him to shoo, and he turns. The lamppost base swings around. Frank ducks, but the sensor doesn't see it coming, and she gets <laughs> thumped pretty hard with it. Goes down. Yeah. This is the beginning of a series of things for her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she endures more indignities. Uh, You might be able to say that the the creators of the film maybe didn't like critics or or censors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it could be. There could be be a little wish fulfillment going on here. (laughs) So a voice from somewhere in the studio calls Lumpy, and it turns out to be this... uh, Nice-looking, pretty woman, uh, just just a pleasant-faced woman. And, and of course, we know her as Marion Ravenwood <laughs> from the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah. And I just, I got to say, at this movie, this is kind of the beginning of what happened in the third or fourth or whatever. No, fourth, I guess, Indiana Jones film. Where, you know, she is a total badass, right, in mm-hmm. that first film. Here, she's a very nice, cheerful person, and she basically continues this character in Indiana Jones 4, which really annoyed me in Indiana Jones because it's like, wait, she's supposed to be this sort of alcoholic, you know, uh, tough woman who can punch someone out. And then in Indiana Jones 4, she's this totally, you know, I mean, kind of like here, she's this totally nice, you know, warm person. And and I just felt like they ruined her character. Hmm. has nothing to do with this movie. It's fine for her to be a nice person in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to. I'll have to watch that uh, Indiana Jones four again because I've only yeah. seen it once. And it was you really some time don't ago. have to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, I'm saying right now, I'm now ne- they're working on the next one right now. I will not watch it. I, I'm you know <laughs> there. There are three Indiana Jones films. We don't need to you know <laughs> watch any after that. <laughs> Oh, I'll probably check it out just to see what it's all about. (laughs) But there does seem to be a trend, especially in 2022. There were, I can't count the number of shows and movies and so forth that came out and people said, what the hell did they do to it? (laughs) Well, and I would argue, I think a tragedy of Harrison Ford's career is that 
He's spending the last 10, 20 years of his career redoing his earlier classic films mm-hmm. and as an old person. And, you know, so Blade Runner 2049 was surprisingly good, actually really good. Yeah, I liked it. But I felt it was hurt by bringing him back. Hmm. Star Wars was absolutely hurt by bringing him back. He didn't want to be there. He didn't turn in a good performance, et cetera. So I just feel like, wow, you know, I would rather he was doing new material than just continually retreading his old stuff and, in in my opinion, you know, ruining it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I could see him doing a lot of – like Jack Nicholson and Clint Eastwood, you know, the older they get, the more different dramatic roles they take on. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. So, yeah, and you know, for all I know, maybe Harrison Ford's been doing some of that stuff, too. I just... Uh, not to, uh, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, this is Claire, who the phone dialed by itself uh, the mm-hmm. night before. Uh, and she's come to answer his, his urgent request for whatever he was requesting from her. And they seem very happy to see her, or see each other, rather. They, 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 mm-hmm. They're just smiling at each other. It's kind of a, um, right. you know, they, they call it, I think, in romantic comedies, when there's, there's some adorable little scene where the characters meet for the first time, it's called a meet-cute sometimes. <laughs> yep. And uh, this is sort of a reunion-cute. You know, just... Yeah, and she's absolutely the only person we've seen so far that he is nice to, right? And he clearly <laughs> likes her, yep. yeah. <laughs> so they talk, you know, we, they haven't talked in 15 years, as Frank said. It comes out eventually that neither of them was ever married, which is <laughs> coincident or which is convenient for our, for our story going forward. Yeah, and I'm going to call bullshit. I, I think the idea that she wouldn't have gotten married in the meantime, like, no, she's a pretty, uh, you know, <laughs> pretty attractive person. Uh, I, I think yeah. she'd, she'd be hooked up, but, she, you know. She wouldn't lack for suitors i don't think yeah. but then again you know with her busy life at operation reach out you know who knows yeah yeah and maybe maybe she frank was just like the one that got away and she just yeah, pined for him yeah who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so they're talking and uh having a very pleasant conversation but they're on the set of this show and he's frank is the guy in charge so he keeps getting distracted by the needs of the people on set. You know, there's one of the guys once uh, trying to glue antlers on a dormouse. <laughs> and I got to say, that's one of the guys where I didn't look up his name. I don't know, but he's got to be a cameo because they give him a lot of screen time relatively. It just felt to me like, okay, this is somebody that I don't know who it is. But yeah. Yeah, could be. Could be. Because the deal with him is, right, they can't get these antlers to glue on to this mouse, and so then Frank tells him to staple them on, which upsets. <laughs> Have you tried her. staples? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then she gets very upset about this. Yeah, yeah. So there's these, this, then there's continual hammering, and and he has <laughs> to stop three or four times uh, to to yell out, "Will you please hold the hammering?" Um, <laughs> which makes no sense because this is going to be a live show. They've got to get the set finished right in time <laughs> and he's telling people to stop hammering which means that you know progress would stop right? yeah and as we'll see it gets worse <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so there's all these interruptions but they're having this conversation amidst all of them and finally after yet another distraction frank's back is turned and claire thinks that they were done talking but she had given frank her card at operation reach out the charity where she works 
And, and I try not to keep reading that as reach around, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's me being more like Frank, I guess. <laughs> so she finally takes off while his back is turned. And Frank probably would have gone chasing after her, except that Grace appears. She's got a call from a reporter. She's She's got some kind of portable phone. I'm thinking I must be hooked up to a battery pack because it looks mm -hmm. like a, a handset with a cord on it. Yeah, I mean, they had, you know, portable phones for a long time before, obviously, we got the iPhone and everything. But, yeah, you did have to have these big battery packs, and they had they were very expensive, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's not like one of those big brick phones that you, know, you see sometimes. Uh, I think it's a slimmer handset than that, so it's probably a whole other mechanism somewhere. But anyway, just a little 80s detail for you. <laughs> So there's a call from a reporter. Uh, Grace asks him what she should tell him, and uh, Frank makes some smart-ass remark, which she dutifully starts to repeat. <laughs> and he says, oh, no, and pulls the phone out of her hand uh, and gives a meaningless statement, you know, typical corporate BS about how they're shocked and appalled by this Angeles tragedy, mm -hmm. yada, yada. The censor, who was knocked out by the lamppost, now she's regained consciousness and she's in a wheelchair. And when Frank, for the last time, orders for everybody to stop the hammering, this is a particularly bad time to do it because the guy doing the hammering is in the middle of a pretty crucial nail that holds a wire that <laughs> is holding up the set. So he stops the hammering and the false front of the set falls down right on top of the poor censor. Well, it, one thing falls down, which causes, like, the entire rest of the set to fall yeah, down. Yeah, then there's, there's <laughs> yeah. a domino reaction after <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of physical comedy-type stuff in this movie, more than you might expect. So after all that nonsense, we get to lunch at noon at a very classy restaurant, <laughs> and Preston Rhinelander, Robert Mitchum, is there with Frank. They're sitting at a table, and Preston says he's taken the liberty of hiring someone to work with Frank on Scrooge. You know, he knows that Frank is real busy. He's got a lot on his plate. Preston's trying to ease some of the pressure on him. And, and Well, and part of the thing about this show is they're not just doing the show. Like, they're going to do breaks and go to Berlin and go to the Vatican, and the Vatican is going to bless all of Africa. And all this gonna, like, you know, so. The Holy Father is going to bless the entire Zulu nation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm not I'm not sure how it works that everybody in the Zulu nation wanted to be blessed. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that gives you know his boss Preston the excuse to say, "Well, you're so busy with all this, you know, going around the world stuff that I decided to get you some help." <laughs> yeah, and uh, and Bill Murray, we don't hear him say it directly, but we sense that that he sees this as a threat to him, <laughs> you know, because the the guy who's coming along to help him could very well be his eventual usurper. Yeah. Huh, which turns out to be completely accurate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, because the guy who comes roaring into the restaurant fashionably late is the L.A. slimeball, Bryce Cummings. Bryce sits down, starts talking, and uh, Frank begins to suspect that Bryce is the ghost he's supposed to meet at noon. And Frank starts ask, acting erratically. He, he starts sort of giving uh, Bryce the high sign, like sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like it's you. You're the ghost, aren't you? And that kind of throws Bryce off because he's not the ghost, and he has no idea what, <laughs> what Frank is doing. Frank's highball that he ordered uh, is delivered, and when he goes to drink it, there's an actual eyeball in it. 
And that follows right on the heels of Bryce saying, there is no I in (laughs) T-E-A-M, but there is an I in the drink. So Frank is horrified, and he starts actually just shrieking in the middle of the restaurant and making a big scene. And only Frank can see the eye that's in the drink. Nobody else can. So the waiter takes it away, and we see Bryce looking a little smug that uh, Frank seems unnerved by his presence. So Frank goes, gets up to go get some air, and he sees a waiter on fire, which actually this is another another little ghostly hallucination. It's actually the waiter was serving somebody a flaming <laughs> baked Alaska or some such thing. But to Frank, the waiter appeared to catch on fire from that. So Frank grabs a bucket of water, who's probably icing down a champagne or something, and pours it right on the waiter. Uh, and then he sees that the waiter was never on fire at all. I, I thought it was funny before that, his own waiter, when he's like, you know, Frank's like freaking out and pointing at him, and he's like, oh, that's a baked Alaska. You wouldn't want that. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I think the waiter is another cameo, uh, you know, but. Oh, that's another place where the, uh, or, or no, it, it's another little grammatical thing. Th- throughout the show, we get little hints that Frank is somewhat of a stickler for grammar. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, fr- Frank uh, asks the waiter mm-hmm. if he's the ghost. He says, are you him? And the waiter says, are you he? <laughs> <laughs> There's just a bunch of goofy little fun things in there. I think that's part of the reason that I, you know, they they don't, there's a lot of really big jokes in it, but there are also just a lot of little, you know, casual fun jokes just put in there mm-hmm. for the sake of being fun. So Frank goes out after throwing a bucket of water on the waiter and he hails a taxi. So a modern day, you know, 1980s cab is about to pull up and an old 50s checker cab pulls in and steals the spot at the last mm-hmm. minute. And the ghost is the driver, it turns out. It's Buster Poindexter or David Johansson, as he was, his real name was David Johansson. But, you know, I thought, and maybe he's, I suspect he was playing it this way. I thought it was Tom Waits. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what he looked like and kind of sounded like to me. Uh, so, you know, maybe he was doing him. I don't know. But it, that was my impression. You know? Okay. Yeah. I mean, Tom Waits, I think, has a little more gravelly voice than, yeah. than Buster Poindexter. But, yeah, I mean, I can see that. Yeah. This cab driver, he's the ghost, and he's smoking a big cigar, and he drives very recklessly. He's He's knocking yeah. down awnings, sticking out of buildings, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and he drives by Elliot Loudermilk, who is sitting uh, on the curb with a bottle of booze, and he snatches the bottle of booze right out hmm. of his hand as he passes by. Yeah, so Loudermilk is, you know, continuing his arc of <laughs> hitting bottom. Yeah. I think somewhere in here, like, you know, obviously uh, Frank is very upset and covering his eyes, but, like, when they're, like, going, you know, about to hit a truck or something, they'll just go right through it, right? Because it's really kind of a ghost car. <laughs> yeah, well, especially yeah. once they go start going back in time because the yeah. ghost uh, flips the meter on and it starts coming backward from 1988. Um, and it goes back to the 50s, uh, to the residential neighborhood Frank grew up in. And here is where they just drive right through a milk truck. And the cabbie says, go back to Jersey, you moron. <laughs> This neighborhood has since been torn down, uh, but it was there in the 50s, and four-year-old Frank is on the floor. Uh, He's watching television, (laughs) 
His pregnant mom is on the couch having a cigarette. And so presumably she's pregnant with the younger brother that we'll see mm-hmm. a little later. Or we saw him already, actually, uh, early on. But the father, Earl, arrives home, and this is also one of Bill Murray's brothers. Yeah, Brian Doyle Murray, who's probably yeah. the most well-known other Murray, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I believe he played the mayor in the Ghostbusters video game. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's been in various things, a fairly recognizable face. He might have been- He was in uh, the vacation films, I think, yeah. Could be. I can't remember. I, I think he might have been a cast member on Saturday Night Live for a while, like in the mm. later years after Bill Murray was off of the show. Mm. I, I could be wrong. But anyway, he's a butcher, and he's brought Frank's Christmas present, which is five pounds of veal. <laughs> <laughs> and which, you know, which wasn't what Frank had asked for. <laughs> yeah, I think he wanted a choo-choo or something like that. Yeah, he wanted a train. <laughs> Frank gets teary-eyed seeing his mom and hearing her call him Frankie Angel, which uh, is exactly what the ghost had said would happen. It would be Niagara Falls, just like Mm. when Attila the Hun saw his mom. (laughs) (laughs) Frank, as they're leaving, he's trying to justify his life to the ghost. You know, the ghost says he never, never did anything except watch television. And Frank's trying to recall big things he accomplished. Uh, you know, with a winning home run and running through a field of wildflowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out every event he remembers was actually something that happened to characters in television episodes. <laughs> so then they go forward in time a little bit to 1968 in the offices of IBC, where Frank is now the president. Back then, he was uh, in some lowly position, probably a mailroom clerk. Uh, and he's handing out envelopes, even though there's a party going on all around him. And in fact, the ghost mentions that the Christmas parties at IBC were a tradition since the golden age of television uh, until Frank took over. So mm. in addition to everything else, he, he stopped the Christmas parties. So he really, uh, Frank has obviously gone downhill since the 1960s. There's a Nice party going on. One of the employees is a nice young lady who's Xeroxing her buttocks for Hmm. handing them out to everybody. She invites him to go get some Chinese food, but Frank says, Oh, no, didn't you hear? They're putting cats in the Chinese food. (laughs) So the elevator door closes and takes the ghost and Frank to later that night, uh, where Frank gets smacked in the door as someone exits a supermarket or just a neighborhood market. Oh, you said smacked in the door. He gets smacked in the head. <laughs> oh, yeah. Smacked in the head by a door. <laughs> as somebody's exiting a neighborhood market, and that is, of course, Claire. The door hits him in the head, and that's and that's how he got the name Lumpy that she had used earlier. And they talk some, and it almost looks like they're just going to end up going their separate ways. But finally... Claire asks him to go for Chinese food, and we hear a yowling cat, and we move ahead a year to Christmas 1969, Christmas Eve, in an apartment that apparently they share together. Uh, They're opening Christmas presents. Uh, Frank got Claire a set of uh, Ginsu knives, the ones that can cut through tin cans. Yeah, again, I don't think the kids today would have seen those great ads where, you know, you have these knives and they're cutting a tomato and then they're cutting a tin can and then they're yeah. cutting something. It's just one of those classic, you know, these knives are going to change your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I've never had one, so who knows? Maybe they would have changed my <laughs> life. So he got her the Ginsu knives, and uh, one of my, uh, well, I have many favorite lines, but one of, one of them is, I've never liked a girl enough to give her a dozen <laughs> sharp knives. <laughs> and she got him a copy of the Kama Sutra, a nice big mm-hmm. hardcover, fully illustrated edition with pictures of actual ancient Indian statuary, you know, doing all the positions. Yeah, it was amusing because they show shots of that. And if you were to like freeze frame it, you can see some pretty explicit stuff in there. Yeah, yeah you, you would have to squint, you know. It's not exactly, you know. It, not, not, not to say that in. I did that, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, and they probably never reckoned on uh, HD video coming mm-hmm. to home video either. Frank mentions at one point, she Claire asks him if they were, if they opened presents on New Year's Eve, or New Year's Eve, on Christmas Eve when, <laughs> when he was a kid. And he says, if it were going to spoil, we opened it the night before. <laughs> and this is where, it, the, the fact that he uses the subjunctive here, that he says, if it were going to spoil, I had never noticed this before, but later on, he actually corrects his brother at a party when he, his brother fails to use a subjunctive. So hmm. it's it's just a fun little detail that I had seen the movie hmm. probably six to eight times before, and I've never caught that. Well, it reminds me of a little thing in my family, which is, you know, we were poor, so a lot of times we didn't really have money for presents. But what would happen is on Christmas Eve, like us kids would badger our parents into allowing us to open one gift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course... An hour later, it was complete carnage. You know, <laughs> everything's been opened. You know, <laughs> our family had no discipline whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess as long as everybody got the presents, that's what counts. Yep. <laughs> that's the meaning of Christmas. <laughs> All right, let's see what else happens. Oh, then uh, after these, this touching gift exchange, uh, which ends up with him. Uh, holding Claire in his lap while she's barking like Lassie and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll give them their, it, yeah. their, their privacy at this point. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> we jump ahead to 1971, uh, where we see the 1988 version of Frank is in the audience of the Frisbee, the dog show. It is a little, these little bleachers for the kids to sit and watch the show as it's being filmed. Kind of like the peanut gallery and howdy doody or, you know, that sort mm. of thing. But 1971 Frank is in the dog costume. He is Frisbee the dog. So at a commercial break, uh, Lou Hayward, the network president, he invites Frank to dinner. Now, we have already seen that Lou knew who Frank was because he talked to him when he was handing out those envelopes at the Christmas party. And, and he asked, did you notice a Christmas party going out around here? So, mm-hmm. so they're already acquainted to some extent. But now Lou is making dinner plans with his secretary. His wife's out of town, so he says, well, I guess we'll have to take you to, to dinner instead. <laughs> uh, and he, he invites Frank, and he says, bring your girl, Claire. But Claire, as soon as Lou uh, departs to do his business stuff, Claire shows up, and Frank's all excited. He's been invited to uh, dinner with Lou Hayward, but uh, she reminds Frank they've had dinner plans with their friends for a month. And Frank says, well, we can see our friends anytime. <laughs> and, and he goes on uh, to explain that he's been fighting for the integrity of the Frisbee show. 
hmm. which uh, is, it's hard to imagine exactly what kind of integrity is <laughs> being violated there, but he's been but I will say, it. you know, he's kind of right here in the sense of, it's hard to imagine how he goes from playing a dog on this show to running the network. Probably this dinner was a big part of that, mm-hmm. right? Where he sort of accidentally got to go to dinner with this major bigwig. So for his career, it made sense to do this, mm-hmm. even though it would, you know, screw over his friends. Yeah. No, it. Uh, I mean, from his point of view, this is like opportunity knocking. You know, this is the, mm. the biggest knock most people are ever going to get, probably. So it's his 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 wanting to go to the dinner is understandable, but but Claire's being offended by it is also understandable. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she suggested they separate for a while. So maybe this isn't the first, you know, crack in the mm-hmm. whole facade. And the ghost makes fun of Frank for this because uh, Frank screwed up <laughs> in his <laughs> in his opinion. And he tells Frank he doesn't know where he is or what he's doing or what's going on. And Frank tries to uh, sass back at him, but suddenly the ghost isn't sitting next to him, but he's on an overhead monitor. Uh, and Frank is suddenly back in the IBC studio in 1988. And that's where I'll hand it over to you. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's half the movie, so now we'll go to the second half. We now see Frank on the set of his show that they're working on, and a woman who I assume is the wife of Ebenezer Scrooge is telling him off, and she separates from Scrooge. I think I think in the story she was supposed to be like somebody who was going to be somewhat like Claire, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they were right. everything looked like they were going to be together, but they didn't end up that way. Right, makes sense. <laughs> and Frank. You know, he appears on the set and he calls her a little bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, she says she's using a line from, she. you know, they're doing their rehearsal and she says, right. hey, may you be happy with the path you've chosen or something <laughs> like that. And Frank comes out and says, I am happy, you little bitch. <laughs> so thankfully it is a rehearsal, but Frank believes he's back now. You know, he's kind of, everything's okay now. Nothing is wrong. Then he says nobody would be so good and kind and wonderful if they didn't have a trick up their sleeve. (laughs) That's right. Claire's got some master plan. (laughs) And now we see Loudermilk coming out of a trailer where he just gave blood for a few bucks. And it's, you know, it's funny to me because my parents actually did this. You know, we were poor and they would actually go and give blood so we could go to a movie or something. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a common uh, trope, I think, or cliche. I, I actually should look into it and see if I could make a few bucks that way. <laughs> so now we see Frank walking along the street and he's monologuing about how as a rich person he's so miserable. <laughs> and then he stumbles across the Ninth Street Temporary Shelter, which is where Claire works, which he knows from that card she gave him. And he walks through the building ranting about what his future wife will be like. She's going to serve his needs and wants. And, and there's a woman on the staff who's like, oh, another crazy person. Okay, we'll help you out. <laughs> Wild and woolly one. <laughs> yeah, she wraps him up in a blanket and sits him down. And then three customers of the shelter approach him. And the first of these is Michael J. Pollard, who we saw in Bonnie and Clyde, right? He was the gas station attendant who joined them. He was the first uh, addition to their gang, yeah. 
So one more connection to our films. <laughs> and I, I, I pat myself on the back that I, uh, I recognized him in that, you know, from Scrooge, uh, even <laughs> though he was considerably younger back then. But yeah, he, he has a very distinctive look and he's very short, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for some reason, these three people who approach Frank believe that he is Richard Burton. <laughs> they yeah. keep calling him Dick. <laughs> <laughs> and he talks about how he's been thinking a lot about the past and how he could have made different decisions. <laughs> and she says, are you talking about regret? And he's like, yeah, I'm talking about regret. And she says, it's never too late. And he now wants to take her out to Chinese. Mm-hmm. And the volunteers tell Claire that the fuses have blown and she is needed, you know, so she can't go out with them. And also the A&P didn't send any turkeys, so she has a bunch of stuff she needs to handle. And he, you know, he seemed to be, like, getting better, but now he just immediately reverts back to his old self. And, you know, he says they can just go to the hardware store for fuses and they can look up A&P in the phone book to get the turkeys. Yeah, it's really – and Claire is very reasonable. She says – just give me a minute to work mm-hmm. on this. And, and they're probably both problems that she could resolve, maybe not in a minute, but under 10 minutes probably. Right. But Frank tells her she needs to fire these these women, and she's like, well, they're volunteers. <laughs> and he says they're volunteers because no one will pay them. They're incompetent, you know. <laughs> and when she insists on, on dealing with this stuff, he blows her off and gives her advice. He says she should scrape them off and save herself, and he walks out. <laughs> And on his way out, and this will become important, Michael J. Pollard asks him for $2 so he can heat his place. And, of course, Frank refuses. Back at the studio, the the scantily clad dancers, and when I say scantily clad, they are scantily clad. (laughs) They could be more scantily clad, but, uh, you know, they've they've got, uh, like, coats with tails, so. Certainly for, you know, family time on, you know, uh, uh, TV, uh, not what you would necessarily expect. Yeah, yeah, they're they're not really uh, in the the real Victorian spirit of the (laughs) Christmas Carol. And then we see John Houseman rehearsing his lines. And John Houseman is this very classic actor and producer. He worked with Orson Welles and he, you know, he did the paper chase. That's what I saw him as a kid. Again, nobody now knows what the paper chase is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Back, back in the eighties, he was, uh, you know, he, he was sort of a distinguished, you know, slightly stuffy appearing kind of guy. Yeah, you always have, you know, that kind of guy who's, like, introducing shows on on PBS or whatever, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what he was doing in the very first promo we saw. He was Mm. reading this little book, uh, you know, in front of a fireplace and being being the host and so forth. Then we see Buddy Hackett, which is another great, you know, essentially cameo here because, you know, (laughs) you can believe in this. And he's playing Scrooge and he's rehearsing. And Bryce gets on his case for getting his lines wrong and then calls for a dinner break. And he says, it's one hour and that includes walking time. (laughs) So he's definitely, you know, cracking the whip. And then he sees Frank and asks how he's doing. And Frank is annoyed because he's the one who's supposed to call for the meal breaks. And Bryce is like, oh, of course. Well, here, you, I'll bring everyone back. And you, know, you can <laughs> he tell holds him. the megaphone up to Frank's yeah. mouth and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now that everybody's off the set, the lights start shutting down. And Frank is disturbed, <laughs> and we get a spotlight on our next ghost, Carol Kane. And this is one of my favorite parts of the movie. I like her a lot. <laughs> she is fun. Yeah. So she's dressed up in a pixie costume, including wings, so she should be very delicate. Yeah, <laughs> fairy <not>. godmother type, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And she flies delicately toward Frank and kicks him in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, there's a there's a little easel next to her that says uh, the ball breaker sweet instead of the nutcracker <laughs> sweet. <laughs> and she announces that she is Christmas present. And she then punches him, <laughs> and he wakes up in Harlem. And they're at the house of his secretary, Grace, and she has two girls and the silent boy. And the kids are passing around some kind of Christmas gift, which is like a puzzle uh, with some balls rolling around inside it and stuff, and none of them can solve it. So they put it down and leave the room. And then the silent boy brings the puzzle to the window where Frank and the pixie are. But he can't see them, but and he solves it in seconds. And Frank is impressed at his intelligence. Mm-hmm. And the pixie tells Frank that the boy hasn't spoken since he saw his father killed five years ago. And Frank doesn't remember that Grace's husband died. And Carol Kane, you know, the pixie reminds him that Grace was wearing black for a year. (laughs) (laughs) And he thought that was just a fashion thing. Everybody was wearing black. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on Frank's side. I wouldn't notice this kind of thing. (laughs) The pixie says it's the boy's choice. Only he can break the spell of his silence. And as they watch the family play, she tells Frank that he should be paying Grace more. And then she, like, starts punching him and stuff until <laughs> until he agrees. Uh, you know, I don't – yeah, she wouldn't uh, get past HR. <laughs> and then, bizarrely, she starts, like, doing raspberries on his well, stomach. Well, she's imitating what the family is doing because right. one of the kids is down on the ground and they're doing raspberries on him. Right. So she does that to him. And then she says the next stop is downtown and punches him again. (laughs) And they're now at Frank's brother's Christmas party in present day. And the family is playing Trivial Pursuit. And Frank knows the answers to all the questions. And then his brother is opening the present from Frank. And it turns out that, you know, Frank said he would get a towel, but Grace actually sent him a VCR. And it's like a, you know, really modern, you know, the best of the line. So he's very impressed. Top of the line, (laughs) pioneer VCR. Yep. (laughs) And his brother's wife talks about how his brother always invites Frank. Frank never comes. When's he going to learn and stop inviting him? And he says, never. He's my brother. (laughs) (laughs) Then we get this trivial pursuit question. What was the boat that took them to Gilligan's Island? And Frank is insulted. It's such an easy question. And his brother answers, S.S. Mackerel. (laughs) Of course, Frank knows the real answer, and he's offended. And now, you know, the pixie wants to leave. Frank refuses. So she picks up a toaster that someone had as a gift, and she smacks him in the face with it. (laughs) This is pretty funny. It's a toaster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, and I I think, uh, you know, when we first recorded this in that that, – effort that went pretty well except for the part about the sound recording (laughs) um we had a little talk about carol kane probably for the benefit of younger viewers um some newer shows you might have seen her in would be uh she was lillian in uh, the unbreakable kimmy schmidt and i believe she played the penguin's mother in gotham so those are some newer now, references. One that the kids wouldn't know is she was in Taxi opposite mm. um, Andy Kaufman. Uh, Andy Kaufman, right? And she was like one of the only actresses who could be as weird as him, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so after being smacked in the face with the toaster, Frank wakes up in a freezing sewer under the sidewalk. Uh, he can see people walking above him because it's one of those cases, like in New York, where there's a grate above him on the sidewalk, mm. but no one will help him. And then he sees Michael J. Pollard, whom he'd refused to give $2 to 
to heat his place, and Pollard is sitting there completely frozen. It's a good effect, and I assume it's him. I assume it's not a doll or something, but it's mm-hmm. really – whatever they did, it's really effective. He really does look frozen there. Yeah, he manages to hold real still. And, you know, he's got icicles off his face, so that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And then Frank crashes through the sewer door to get out, and suddenly he's on the film set. <laughs> he's running into everything. And he starts some barrels rolling, and one of them hits the sensor. So, you know, throughout the evening here, the sensor has been getting abused more and more. <laughs> and Bryce then gets Frank removed from the set and says, oh, you can supervise things from your office. You know, he's kind of treating him like he's kind of sort of a, you know, old person with dementia or something. Yeah. And Bryce calls the elevator, and it opens, and there's a figure of death. And Frank goes crazy. <laughs> he's like, oh, my God, and he thinks it's real. But it turns out it's just a costume actor for the show. So Frank goes up in the elevator, and the show is about to go live, and Mary Lou Henner is practicing. Uh, I don't remember if we said this earlier, but her bit is she is Tiny Tim. But in you know at the end of the show, what she does, because she's a gymnast, is she does this whole run and flips and stuff on a pad, <laughs> and then and then you know, lands on her feet and opens her arms. So it's yeah, kind of a bizarre. She's supposed take. to throw away the crutches, then do some backflips yeah. and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Frank is in his office drinking vodka and staring out at the harvest moon. And I, I enjoy the way he mixes his drink here because he's got this giant glass of vodka <laughs> and you can just see him tap a couple drops of tab out of the can <laughs> into it. And the live show is starting, and John Houseman begins his intro to the show. And Frank sees on his desk the present from his brother, and he opens it up. And it's a framed photo of them as kids, and that really impacts him. Yeah, and his brother even made the frame himself. Yeah. And Frank is watching the show as the ghost of Christmas future is about to show up. And behind him, and it's a pretty good effect for, you Mm -hmm. know, the time— there's this matrix of TV monitors at right? the whole wall. That was actually what they were watching in the very beginning of the movie. And we see coming, uh, you know, while the show is going on and being displayed on all these different screens, we see the ghost of Christmas future coming up and filling up all of the TVs. Yeah, and it's it's neat how they did it because I'm sure they had the technology to just make it a steady like like superimpose the exact image over the over the wall of televisions but instead they're all slightly out of sync you know like mm. uh, it's it's like they might have filmed the ghost leaning in a few different times and just taken <laughs> random sections of it for different televisions yeah so. i didn't notice that that's good and we see uh a a, bit, a huge hand you know a huge bony hand reach out from the TVs behind frank and grab him. So you assume, well, okay, now he's going to get his confrontation with the ghost of Christmas future, but that's not what happens. <laughs> Instead, louder milk at this instant bursts into the room holding a rifle. A shotgun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and interrupts everything. And he fires his shotgun into the ceiling. <laughs> now, this is the other connection to our previous movies because this scene is right out of nine to five, right? <laughs> Which came before this. Yeah. Where Frank is running through the office while Loudermilk is shooting at him <laughs> and blowing things up. And he calls Frank a wabbit, <laughs> agrees to give him a running start. And Frank is crawling and running just like we saw in nine to five as, as he shoots at things. 
Frank gets trapped at the elevator and Loudermilk is about to shoot him, but the elevator doors open up and Frank falls back into the elevator and the door is closed. So <laughs> Loudermilk lost his chance. It turns out the guy with the desk costume is in there and Frank, you know, does this whole bit because now, you know, obviously it's the actor and he's like, oh, you know, you're just an actor and, you know, et cetera. Don't touch me like that. You don't have the right. But of course, this time it's really death. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of realizes that when it, he looks into his face and his face is a computer screen or a oh, TV it's a monitor. television, yeah. Yeah. And starts playing things. And then he looks under the guy's robe and uh, <laughs> there are all these uh, damned souls in there. <laughs> yeah, they're like inside his rib cage writhing around. It's pretty <laughs> disturbing. <laughs> Frank asks him something like, uh, did our people do that? We're going to get calls. <laughs> <laughs> and then the elevator's doors open. Frank leaves, and he's in a weird slanted corridor, and there are windows with protective wire behind them. When he looks through, behind one is Grace and her son, but her son is, you know, sort of uh, tied up in a padded cell, so something's gone really wrong, this being the future. And we don't know what the son has done, but she's there to comfort him, but she's forced to leave, even though she just got here, but everything's closing down. And Frank is upset to see this because he liked the son, right, when when he saw him solve the puzzle and all that. Mm-hmm. And and he's like, well, this is just one possible future, right? I can fix it. You know, I know a top psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and back in the elevator, he's, you know, death takes him to a new floor. And this is really weird because it's a future very rich and elite and heavily made up Kate Claire, right? His girlfriend, mm-hmm. the absolutely perfect and empathetic woman, but she's no longer empathetic. She's with her girlfriends at a lunch table. And it's kind of, you know, the way they're dressed up is like they're in the 1920s or something, right? Right. Yeah, 1920s it, really rich people. It kind of reminds me of Brazil. I don't know if you've seen <laughs> yeah. that one, but yeah. there's there's like a dinner with some high society women there that's a similar type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. There are some poor and hungry kids begging them as they're trying to eat lunch and claire tells her friends that she wasted 20 years of her life on pathetic creatures like these but she had a friend you know frank who told her that she should scrape kids like this off of her and that was a big you know lesson and she insists that the waiter get rid of these these kids and then you see a little tear trickle down her cheek and she says thanks lumpy but she's (laughs) obviously not happy at all yeah So now death takes Frank to a funeral level, and he sees a coffin, and he realizes it must be his brother. And he's like, oh, I can't believe my brother died. Uh, You know, and the coffin is about to be cremated, right? It's like on a track that's going into a fire. And he's like, oh, you know, I'll send his wife something or whatever. Except then his brother walks into the room, Mm. and eventually Frank realizes the coffin is his. Yep. And uh, I wanted to just mention here that the priest in this scene is Michael O'Donohue, who he was on early Saturday Night Live as Mm -hmm. Mr. Mike, and there's a biography Hmm. of him called Mr. Mike. Hmm. But he was one of the co-writers of this movie, and apparently he was not happy with how it turned out. He wanted it Hmm. to be even darker than it actually ended up being uh you know and it's a pretty dark movie as it is yeah. in, in spots but mr mike wanted it to be much darker so i, <laughs> I would i would really enjoy reading the original script I, I, if it ever 
Yeah, but I'm going to say this may be one of those cases where the studio is right. Like, I'm not not sure this should have been darker. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's pretty damn dark already. Yeah, there's there's certainly uh, a lot to be said for its current state. So (laughs) I'm curious, though. I would like to at least read what they had planned. (laughs) So once Frank realizes it's his coffin, he gets very upset and he runs over and tries to keep it from being, you know, going into the fire. And then he's inside the coffin, pounding against the lid, and his legs are burning. And this, again, very similar to a scene in Kill Bill, mm-hmm. <laughs> where she's in a coffin. So another connection to our, our previous films. Not nearly as drawn out as it is in Kill Bill. <laughs> and I'm not sure Tarantino was actually influenced by this, but it's just kind of funny. Yeah. That, you know, he, Frank is pounding on the coffin lid, and then he finds himself in an elevator, and he's pounding on the elevator door. And the door opens and he falls out and he's like, holy shit, I'm alive. <laughs> and he's <laughs> extremely happy to be alive and he's wandering around, you know, talking about how great it is and all the stuff he's going to do. What he doesn't notice is that Loudermilk is behind him, still pointing the rifle at him, about to shoot him. <laughs> but when he notices Loudermilk, he doesn't care. <laughs> he grabs him, spins him around the room, kisses him, takes his rifle, <laughs> and then, call back to earlier, he does a raspberry on his stomach. <laughs> And Loudermilk is confused, and he's like, I am looking for Francis Xavier Cross, who's clearly not you. (laughs) And Frank says, that's me, but it's not me. And on a nearby TV, a bell goes off, and Frank realizes the live show isn't over yet, and he has a chance to be involved. So he gets in the elevator to go to the set. Yeah, and he hauls hauls Bobcat Goldthwait into the elevator with him. Oh, that's right, yeah. And on the set, Buddy Hackett is Scrooge, is leaning out a window, telling a local boy, I assume Tiny Tim, but, uh, to find him the biggest goose in London. And he tosses a coin to the boy, but Frank is the one who catches it. And meanwhile, Loudermilk enters the broadcast booth with his shotgun, and he takes control of the booth for Frank. And on the live show, uh, Frank says the boy who was supposed to catch the coin is doing a great job, and he starts monologuing about how he's the president of the network. And Robert Mitchum and his wife are watching all this on their TV at home, and Mitchum is quite upset, obviously, and he picks up the phone to fire Frank immediately. (laughs) And on camera, Frank asks, what kind of ass would schedule a live TV show on Christmas Eve? And the cameraman says, only you, Frank. And Frank agrees and says a week ago he'd have immediately fired the cameraman. And Frank criticizes himself and shows the picture of him and his brother as kids and says he tried to give his brother a towel for Christmas. (laughs) The VCR was from Grace. <laughs> yeah. And then Frank says on air that it was the SS Minnow that brought the people on the Gilligan show to the island, which freaks out the people in his brother's house because how did he know about all that? Right? Mm-hmm. And Mitchum calls the broadcast room and Loudermilk answers and says that it was Bryce who decided to put Frank on the air. <laughs> so he's throwing him under the <laughs> under the bus. And he says Bryce can't talk now because he's tied up because he's, of course, literally tied up. And then he says Bryce called Mitchum a butthead and is attracted to him. And we have a little bit of 80s homophobia in there. (laughs) Yeah, and I think uh, when Mitchum hears that, he kicks his cat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because I think it must have been earlier. There was some point where they had the mice or whatever on screen and – and Mitchum's cats are like leaning up and pawing at the screen. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah. I told you. <laughs> yeah, it was proof of his theory. Pets are watching television. <laughs> so on the set with the live cameras, Frank is wandering around joking with the crew. And he asks for 
champagne to be delivered for 250 people, but the stuff he orders for himself, not what he usually gives to other people. (laughs) And he observes that there's a batch of holly over a scantily clad dancer, so he kisses her very explicitly. mistletoe, I think. Uh, You're right. uh, right. (laughs) As he kisses the dancer, the sensor in the broadcast booth is getting hot. (laughs) She looks over at the tied-up Bryce. And I think she sees some uh, mistletoe above him, and she decides to go for him. (laughs) She says, Mr. Cummings. (laughs) And he's not happy about it. Then Frank says the kiss with the dancer was very good, but not as good as if it could be with the girl he loved a long time ago. And he describes a position from the Kama Sutra (laughs) that they could try. And Claire sees this on TV, and she rushes out and gets a cab to take her to the studio and she's like, how long will it take? And it turns out it's the ghost cabbie. And he says, what floor do you want to go to? <laughs> and meanwhile, on camera, Frank gives a classic end of movie, newly good guy speech about taking care of the poor and hungry. And the little boy shows up next to Frank. And Frank says, did I forget something? And, you know, the little boy, again, who can't talk, leans over and says, God bless us, everyone. He'd forgotten that phrase. Mm-hmm. So it turns out he can talk. And now Claire has arrived in the studio, and Frank drags her in front of the cameras and introduces her to the audience and says, and they lived happily ever after, and he kisses her. And the crew sings, put a little love in your heart, and Frank looks around and sees the ghosts that he met as part of the singing crowd. And it's oh, yeah. the end, except it's not quite the end. <laughs> yeah, even the uh, even the damned souls in the Ghost of Christmas Future's ribcage, they got little uh, you know candy canes and Christmas <laughs> ornaments and stuff. Right. So now Murray approaches the camera and says, feed me, Seymour, feed me, which, of course, is a reference to him being in the um, little show. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he then directs the different sides of the theater to join in on the song and makes fun of them and such. <laughs> and then we get the real end of the movie. Yeah, and Little Shop of Horrors, um, to call back to a, Long distant episode at this point. Um, I mentioned in one of our episodes that Ghostbusters was one of my three favorite movies about Bill Murray in New York City. And uh, this and uh, Little Shop of Horrors are the other two. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And that's the end. So I have to say, the first time I watched this, uh, I agreed with Ebert. And in Ebert's review... Roger Ebert, he said, Scrooge is one of the most disquieting, unsettling films to come along in quite some time. It was obviously intended as a comedy, but there's little comic about it. And indeed, the movie's overriding emotions seem to be pain and anger. This entire production seems to be in dire need of visits from the ghost of Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) And when I first watched it, I mean, that first, you know, half or whatever, where he's being a real asshole really was a turnoff to me. And it, it didn't it wasn't like he was being an asshole in a charming way, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this was just a really bad guy in his very bizarre worldview where he thought their commercial should be all about, you know, the end of the world or whatever for <laughs> for the movie. But as I mentioned, watching it a couple more times, uh, probably because I know where it goes and everything, I, it, it softened on me that first part. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of this stuff, when in that first part, uh, Bill Murray, I think comes across like even when he's saying things that are are harsh he there's just that certain bill murray-ish kind of winking quality Mm -hmm. you know that that it's hard to take him too seriously um which of course gets elliot Lattermilk fired but (laughs) 
so, so yeah, I mean, and of course, it's been so long ago since I first saw it that I can't remember my original reaction to it, really. I remember I liked it well enough to watch it again. Uh, right. But uh, it did. Well, it reminds me of a movie like Blade Runner, right? Like, or, or even 2001, where when if you just watch them once or twice, many, many people are like, oh, this is boring, or I don't understand what's going on. And it's really when you watch it like the third, fourth, fifth time <laughs> that the movie works for you, right? Now, mm-hmm. I'm not calling this movie either of those. In fact, I would say, I here's my worth watching review, right? Is it worth <laughs> watching? I'd say, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> if you want to watch it, watch it. You know, there are many, many things I would recommend you watch before that. But mm-hmm. unlike, say, <laughs> God Bless America, which I hated, I don't hate this, especially a- after a couple times of watching it. So you have my blessing if you want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. My worth watching review would be one of my very favorite movies, probably in my top <laughs> ten, and I can't really, I can't really account for it. It's just one of those movies that somehow strikes a chord with me. You know, the the combination of elements in it just adds up right for me. So I can yep. see that not everybody would feel uh, as affectionate towards it as I do, but uh, uh, I I just have always enjoyed it. There you go. Well, yeah, I think everybody should have their films that, uh, you know, work for them and <laughs> not necessarily everybody else. Yeah. Santa's workshop. Eat this, and only Lee Majors can stop them. The night the reindeer die. 8.30, and America's best-loved singer invites you to share a home-style holiday. When it's Bob Goulet's old-fashioned Cajun Christmas. Ring a 
9 o'clock, IBC presents America's favorite family in a special Christmas episode. Hi, Mom. Where's Dad? Should have been home by now. Well, Wally, if I know your father, he's out chasing beaver. Father loves beaver. Here on IBC, you'll love it. <laughs>